Today on the Big Break Software Podcast, we have Lowell Rickless. He is a SaaS veteran with experience selling and buying more than 30 businesses. Lowell is a founder of Traction Advising, which specializes in helping B2B SaaS companies with greater than 5 million ARR get acquired. He's a global mentor, investor, board member, and CEO coach. Today, we'll talk with Lowell about some of his best advice on how to scale your SaaS for acquisition what investors will be looking for, and what he looks for in the companies that he's invested in throughout the years. How are you today, Lowell? I'm great. Happy to be here, Gordy. Thanks. Great. So uh, I gave you a quick intro, but why don't you tell me, um, you know, what exactly, what do you feel like you solve a problem for your customers that's not currently being solved right now? Yeah, we've got a little bit different approach. Um, you know, I've got an operating background, uh, you know, computer science, electrical engineering, Fortune 500 company uh, to you know, scale a couple of mid-market companies at exits was a you know, co-founder of a healthcare fintech company and acquired a number of companies along the way. Really felt that you know the classic investment banker has a finance background, and I just always I always thought it, when working with them, I didn't feel that they added a lot to the selling process, and I realized that you know you, you would never put your CFO in charge of sales and marketing, right? It's just a different skill set. So why do you put bankers in charge of selling your company. Um, you know, you wouldn't put your head of sales in charge of finance either. So, so we've got a unique approach. You've got an enterprise selling background. I think selling companies is, is more like, you know, in theory, they're infinitely scalable. Uh, their financials are relatively simple. So it's more about selling and positioning and walking the buyer through the buying process uh, than it is about uh, just preparing documents and, and running a structured process. So, so we, can extract maximum value for our clients um, by partially just by knowing. We've, we've been on the buying side, have been a founder, um, and we've been through you know a number of exits. So, and we enjoy it. We enjoy. It. I know how hard it is to start a company. I know how hard it is to raise money to get that first you know dollar, euro, pound of revenue. So, a lot of empathy for the journey founders have gone through. So, to be clear, your your the the main business model really is advising. Um, founders through the exit process. So it's sort of like, um, is, is it M&A, would you say? Mergers, acquisitions type type of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. M&A advisors. So yeah, we'll, we will, we'll research buyers, you know, and then we'll create the confidential information presentation. We'll do the outreach. Uh, we'll do fireside chats with, with the founders and then we'll help with negotiations along the way as well. Yeah, so we, okay. yep. So like, would you, would you like VCs be coming to you to do that? Or I imagine it's sort of a whole mix of, of different types of uh, scenarios that you might encounter for your. Yeah, it's a good question. We actually don't do fundraisers for people. We only do exits. So, so majority, um, you sell a majority of, of, of the stock or the assets. So we work with, um, you know, two primary categories there, you know, there are strategics, which are operating companies. And then there's private equity, which has a lot of different flavors, which I'm happy to talk about. But there, there's search funds, um, which are small groups of wealthy investors that support an individual to find a company and buy it. Um, that's a, a, an increasingly um, viable option. That, that's pretty interesting. There's classic private equity, right? You've got like the Riversides and, you know, the, the very large funds that have you know multiple billions of dollars that they put to work with the goal of you know tripling their their investment for the, for their investors 
And then you've got some family offices. You've got very wealthy individuals who, who put a, a portion of their portfolio to work buying companies. And, and, and I would argue, I would say probably many, if not most of the transactions are, are PE-backed strategics. So we work with you know, smaller SaaS companies, typically over 5 million, but we do work with some that are three to 4 million if they've got a trajectory to five. And um, private equity will often have a strategy or a thesis they will buy a platform company, which has 10 to 20 million in revenue, and then they will they'll do add-ons or bolt-on companies. So smaller companies, you know, that are you know three, four, five, six million in revenue, that are are complementary and they're active buyers. What's interesting about that is it's more like selling to a strategic because an actual operating company is going to buy you, but you know, dad has a big checkbook and and the clock is ticking for them, so they want to to buy companies fairly quickly. Uh, they've moved heavily into the SaaS space. They understand the value. Um, they're often willing to pay the highest price. Um, and it's it's a little bit like selling to a, a street strategic uh, with the benefits of a financial backer. So, but to, also just to clarify, so we don't typically don't work with VCs. VCs typically do like minority investments. You know, they're, okay. they're, they're making bets and hoping that some pay off. Private equity usually takes, there, there is growth equity, but they usually take an ownership position. Um, okay. There are some VCs that are very, very large that have large investments in companies, uh, and those companies are quite large, and they they may look at adding on other companies. But typically, it's not VCs, and it's a different it's a different conversation than VCs. VCs of PE, which I could talk a lot a little bit about. It's important to know the difference, but I don't know if you want me to yeah. get into that right now. Or not. No, no, because we actually cover that in other shows. I mean, uh, okay, uh, you know, I mean. Um, generally what I'm, uh, what I'm interested in, in speaking with you, since you have an interesting background, we've never actually interviewed someone, um, that, that sort of fits the role that you're filling in the marketplace, which I think is, you know, obviously an important role. Um, but, uh, well, maybe, maybe you could just sort of touch on your experience, uh, being a founder, cause you mentioned in the pre-show that you, you were a founder, um, you had an exit. I mean, why not just start another SaaS company? Well, it's a really good question. Um, and, and the honest answer was I didn't have a lot of original ideas. So even the company where I was a co-founder, it was one of the other co-founders' ideas. They had a CTO. They needed a CEO to kind of lead it. So I came in as the third co-founder. And, you know, upon an exit, um, I... I really looked at what I wanted to do next, and I'd wanted to, you know, build organizations and, and run them. But I, I didn't, I didn't have an idea to found a new SaaS company, um, and I didn't find any. There, there weren't a lot of interesting ideas that I wanted to, to, to join, and I really just thought there was an opportunity out there to, to better represent small SaaS companies. Um, um, because I know our options when we were looking at bankers, you know, if, if we're a five million dollar SaaS company. You know, the typical investment banker, one, you know, they, they do fundraises, they sell pharmacies, you know, they'll sell tractor equipment companies. You know, SaaS companies are just one of the things they sell and they, they often have the same approach. And it's just I just think it's really different. And if you're a five million dollar SaaS company with a large investment bank, they may bring the partners in to convince you to work with them. But, the, you know, you're going to get the junior associate that's actually going to run the process and they're just going to they're just going to follow the, the book. Um and they'll, okay. they'll throw things. At. We thought there was a better way to do it. Give hands-on representation to do, run the best possible process. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so 
All right, let's let's go through some of some of your sort of um, your investment decisions. Uh, let's say if ten companies come at you in a week or something, and they're all kind of at five million revenues. What makes you decide to go with one as opposed to another? In other words, like what are you looking for when when someone comes to you? Really good question. Actually, my uh, my business partner Mark, who's based in London, um, we've actually got like a like a rubric that we we follow and. You know, we look at what's what's the actual revenue. You know, what's the growth rate? We'll look at what's what's the net retention. Uh, we'll look at customer concentration, right? Do you have eighty percent of your business with one client because that's considered a risk? Um, and we'll we'll weigh all those factors. You know, we kind of do our own analysis. We, you know, we'll look at what what vertical that they're in, and basically how likely we feel we are to sell the company for a price that that they're comfortable with. So, I mean, if a if a founder, you know, has very high expectations, right, if it's five million revenue and they say, wow, I've heard people are getting 20 X multiples. I want 100 million for this company. I'll say, great. I mean, good luck to you. You know, we've not seen that, you know, um, yeah, your work. There was a bubble. The, the multiples got high, but we're looking for alignment. And what we think the market will actually pay, because ultimately you get what the company will pay for it. So we'll we'll narrow those things down to try to find out where the best fit is. Um, what do you think is realistic? If is it like a like a five to nine x? Um, I mean, that's generally it, what I sort of hear. It de- again, it depends on all those factors that I talked about, right? If you've got you know if you've got declining revenue, you're going to have a hard time finding anyone to buy the company. No one wants to catch a falling knife. If but I would say, I'll put it this way: the median multiple of companies that we've sold that are cash deals. So I don't include deals that have earnouts that that are are risky. Is five point five. So, um, okay. but it depends. I mean, the reality is, if you're a hundred percent growth company with a hundred twenty percent net retention, my question to them is, why would you sell a company right now? Like, because a year from now, the company is going to be worth four times what it is today, right? So. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. Yeah. That was going to be my next question: is is somebody's at five million? Is like, why are they selling? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of reasons why. You know, sometimes it's personal. Uh, sometimes people, uh, it's a struggle, right? It's hard to build a SaaS business. I mean, they're very valuable. But part of the reason they're valuable is it is it takes a long time, especially B two B SaaS. So sometimes it's personal. They're burned out. Sometimes they want to take, um, you know, all of their their personal balance sheet is in the company, right? They want to take some money off the table. Uh, some want some want out. They want someone else to take over. Others just want to take some money off the table. Um, others see that there's there's competition in the market. If they don't become a, a part of something bigger quickly, they could they could be left behind. Um, you know, often, you know, most people start the company, there's a problem, they find a solution, they envision the solution. And the world will discover it and it'll be this hockey stick exponential growth as everyone adopts it. The reality is that's not usually the case. Often it's it's like a linear growth company, which is good. Those are good businesses. But it's often not what the founder or the uh, the investors thought it would be. And if they get, you know, five, six, seven, eight years into it, that's that's typically who we deal with. Um, they they, they want to move on and do something different. Investors, you know, VCs actually have a fund life, right? They have a 10-year fund life, depending on when they invest in the company. You know, if they're halfway through, you know, year five and you're five years into it, um, the VCs, uh, LPs want liquidity, right? So they're they're looking to get it. So sometimes you'll get pressure from 
uh, investors. Okay. Um, how about uh, somebody comes to you and let's say they're doing like a million or something like that. Um, first of all, why wouldn't you, you feel like that's too small to try and sell at a million? Is that, is that sort of, is, 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 or is it just your model? You just won't get a, enough of it. It's not worth your, your, um, you know, it's not worth your attention to try and sell something at a million. Yeah. It, it, smaller companies are hard to sell. I mean, over a million is hard to get to. So I don't like to minimize the effort that it takes to get to a million. It's actually an impressive milestone, but it's really going to be an opportunistic fit where someone is going to buy it for a million because they're really buying like the team and the tech because the revenue is not going to move the needle for anyone at a million. Okay. And some would argue you haven't really moved the needle that far. Also, from an acquirer standpoint, you know, they often assume it costs them half a million to a million dollars just to do an acquisition. And, and and they just usually won't want to do that for for one million in revenue. When okay. when you cross five million, uh, it moves you into another category. Uh, the multiples tend to be higher. There's a much larger group of people that are interested. And actually, if you get above ten million, or if you're on a clear path to hit ten million, it, it's a longer story. But there's a whole another group of people that will look at you as a potential platform company. So you've just got you've got not only more people that are interested. Um, you know, there's a quality spectrum of buyers as well. So you'll you'll actually get some of the higher quality buyers, even at the same price, I would argue some of the higher quality buyers. Uh, it's a much better experience, both for the process and then longer term as well. So you just have more options as it gets bigger. Okay. So that person that has a million comes to you um, and they say, hey, listen, I'm thinking I'd like to sell my company, you know, when and you're like, okay, great. They already know they should get to five million. What you mentioned, you do some mentoring and advising. Like, what are some of the things, the, some of the levers that that you're looking to to help get them to five million? Or what do you look for at that company that's at a million to help them get to five million? Yeah, so we don't we don't do a lot of that advising anymore. But I will say some of the best practices that I've seen. You know, we I when I was operating, we scaled one company from a million to fifty, one from ten to one hundred and twenty. Um, you know, I always look at, I always operated from the mindset that I've got this great solution and it, that there's, it used to keep me up at night that there's someone somewhere in the world that has the problem I can solve and they're just not aware of my product. So to me, I think you've got to figure out this and it's very simple is figure out um, who's your buyer. What's the profile of the company that's going to buy you? Like what, what, what vertical, what describes them? What's the title of the decision maker that would buy you? Then how do you find every one of those companies and how do you find everyone with that title, get their contact information? And I'm a big fan of drip campaigns. And how do you get that message in front of people? Um, you know, they say B2B takes seven touches on marketing, but at least get that message in front of, in theory, everyone on the planet that, that fits that profile because they're easy to sell to because they're actively looking for a solution to the problem that you solve. When I see a lot of companies, they'll... You know, they, they look at who they know and they, they beat on that world. And those people may have that problem, but they're not actively looking for the solution. It's much harder to sell to. So I find that to be the, the, the easiest way to, to scale up quickly. I mean, that's one piece of it. Now, you know, post-COVID, I'm a big fan of, of conferences. It depends on what the price point is of your product. I mean, if it's 29 bucks a month, it probably doesn't work that way. But if it's, you know, 5,000, 10,000 ACV or more, I found conferences to be a great way 
to um, to meet prospective buyers. And it's not the traditional way. I don't think you get a booth. Ideally, you can get on the stage, um, like earn your way on the stage. Kind of like a, a sort of a, a smaller venue keynote. Um, is that what you're sort of they do a keynote speech yeah. or maybe like a round table or something like that? Yeah, be, yeah. anything. If you can be a part of the program, it gives you credibility when you're up there. But honestly, one of the guerrilla tactics that 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 was the backbone of two of the companies that, that that I helped to scale up was literally if three people go to a conference, what typically happens? Like they go out to dinner together, they go out to drinks, they sit together at breakfast. Um, so we used to make a rule: you can't talk to each other, right? And you show up at seven in the morning and you stand by the coffee, and and you talk to them. You say, "Hi, Gordy, what do you do?" Right? And they talk about what they do. They say, "What do you do?" And you've got your split. This is what we do. Uh, you sit at the breakfast table, right? There's usually eight people at the table. You've got three people there. You're going to meet 24 people uh, for breakfast and then at breaks and then at lunch and then afternoon break and then at dinner, you know, and then in evening. Uh, you can meet 100 to 200 easily uh, prospective clients. And it's you're not pushing them. You're just saying, hi, here's who I am. Here's what I do. Uh, get their business cards, you know, scan their LinkedIn. You can walk away from a conference with two or 300 potential clients who will take your phone call and will respond to your email. Um, that's just hard to duplicate any other way, uh, particularly once they realize you're a decent person, you've got an interesting product. Um, but I found that to be a fantastic way to uh, build a business. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the founder either. That could just be like, a, you know, an, whatever, a sales guy or something yep. like that um, that could do that. Exactly. Anyone who's comfortable, you know, different people are comfortable doing different things. Some people... Um, you know, they have they have something interesting that they can tweet out or throw it on LinkedIn every morning. Um, you know, some people are really comfortable in a large audience just walking up to people and just saying, um, hey, nice to meet you. What do you do? Right. It's easy to ask a question. You don't have to. No one wants to be cornered and pitched. So that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to walk around like hard selling people. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, a twenty nine dollar a month type of product. Um, do you think that? It, it, are there certain types of SaaS that you look for that are sort of higher um, lifetime value or what are sort of the metrics that you look at or you think that future SaaS people should be really sort of using as a criteria to sort of look for a product? Okay, if I'm going to do SaaS, you know, I talked to some of these um, data as a service and the guys are charging, you know, like 20000 a month or something. Um, you have like some guidelines on on like pricing or the sort of business models that you'd like to look for. Well, it's you know you got enterprise, mid market, SMB. It, it, um, we tend to look more at at churn and growth as the primary metrics, more than ACV. And then churn tends to be higher with SMB. It's just the nature of the business. Um, um, SMB companies. Um, are harder to sell. So I, I, I know a lot of the companies that we work with, they sold to SMB, their churn rates were really high. Like when, when you say high churn rate, like what, like 5% or what, like what kind of, what's... Uh, so I'll use annual numbers, but you know, sometimes people have 30, 40, 50% churn numbers, okay. which is really high. Yeah. Um, and even, but you know, for SMB, you know, like even 10% churn is fine. You know, for enterprise, 10% churn would, would be considered, you know, enterprise just tends to be stickier. It's harder to sell to, but it's harder for them to kick you out. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But the, the reason, 
people pay multiples of revenue instead of multiples of EBITDA for SaaS companies is because in theory, it's it's long-term revenue. Right? It's contractually obligated revenue. Um, but the measure of that is is the net retention. And if your net retention is 50%, you know, argue it's really not SaaS. They're buying a, a one-year or two-year license. They're not really buying perpetual software. It, it doesn't stick. People don't like it. So uh, people shy away from those. But net retention is, uh, net retention or growth, it's, you can flip a coin as to which one is most important, but those are the two most important metrics uh, when it comes to being acquired in valuation. Okay. So you, but basically if someone were to come to you, let's say, um, you know, I've got a SaaS idea. This is the, the SaaS. Are there some things that you would say, oh, this is, you know, this, you know, are there certain things that you, that you can kind of get a sense of that's like, oh, that sounds like it, it's probably not going to be something that's going to be easy to sell down down the road with, you know, if somebody's going in with the idea of an exit, like say SMB in a competitive space or something like that is, you know, maybe there, it sounds like you like the idea of some like enterprise, it's very niche, you know, they can charge more. There's certain things that you like to look for. Uh, we like vertical niches. Um, horizontal products are, are hard to sell. They, they typically need to raise a lot more money and you're often competing against some very, very large players. And we just generally found, um, you know, if they're successful, you know, they're, you know, 100 million, 200 million in revenue. Vertical meaning like a single, when you say vertical, you're meaning like a single, uh, like client avatar, like you just one, like rather than like a group. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, instead of, um, instead of the next Smartsheet application, right? Or the next Excel, something that, literally any industry could use, you know, it's, it's a lot of the bit, part of what's super interesting about our business is um, often it's people that are in an industry. Like it might be, you know, we had one that was vegetation management. And at first I thought we do software. We don't do vegetation. And he said, no, 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 we, we have a, a software tool that we provide to the companies that, that cut down vegetation that encroaches on, on corridors for power lines. That's a pretty big deal because if you don't cut it down, you have forest fires and it kills people. So it's a pretty big deal to get it right. And that used to be a paper-based and a whiteboard business. And guess what? People sometimes went to the wrong spot, cut the wrong trees. Um, and, and the consequences of that are, are, are pretty bad. It's a pretty big deal. So they started to leverage technology to ensure that orders were dis dispatched digitally and they could actually confirm via GPS that the work was done in the right place. And they learned how to map the trees and they know how fast the trees grow and it would set reminders on when those trees needed to be trimmed next. So there's just, there's so much. And so that's a, that's a super niche industry. Um, okay. So it's, it's, things like so that would be like municipals. They'd be selling to like municipal, uh, you know, you know, the County office down in somewhere in Southern California or something like that. That's, that's what you're saying. Their client would be for that. Yeah. Yeah. They would sell to utilities typically. Yeah. And we've got, you know, some will sell to government. So government is a niche, right? It's a business to government. You know, uh, um, they, they want to measure engagement or they want engagement from, from the people rather than a city hall discussion where you've got people yelling and screaming where they can actually get input from everyone, all the voters and try to understand what people really think about, you know, should we raise taxes for this? Should we fix the roads or build a new school? Um, that's what I mean by a niche. So that, you know, there are survey tools out there that are very generic that in theory you could use, 
But a lot of these tools get very, very specialized for that industry because they anticipate you as a user in that industry, what you need. Okay. Um, and then how about like uh, on, on the flip side, like sort of something that you think is a bad, like it's going to be difficult to sell. If somebody, that somebody's at two and a half million, they're, they want to sell and at five. I mean, that you maybe like you would turn down because, you know, all that, that that's going to be tough to sell, I think. There are certain industries that have kind of had their day. Um, I mean, um, I don't want to, I don't mean to pick on any, but like advertising technology, like ad tech was, was pretty hot, you know, what, six, seven, eight years ago, some big players that blew up, you know, and then, and I'm not an expert on, on ad tech, but then you saw, you know, uh, Twitter and others change their rules and, and what data they gave access to. So buyers are, are skeptical of that, you know, and things tend to kind of rotate. So buyers, private equity, they tend to have a thesis or a strategy that they build around and it changes over time, right? When COVID hit, their thesis or strategy changed as to which companies to invest in that they think will, will generate money. So if we identify companies that based on, you know, we, we probably, we have thousands of conversations with buyers every year. So we have a feeling for, because they ask us, who are you talking to? What's out there? And we'll ask them, what are you guys interested? What are you focused on? So we have a pretty good idea of what people are interested in. And if we've had other companies that we're talking to, we can kind of pre-sell it. And if people just say, no, nah, we, we, we spent a lot of time on that or we made a lot of mistakes in that industry um, and there's not much interest, then those are things that we would tend to not pursue because we just realize there, there aren't a lot of interested parties. doesn't mean they can't be sold. Um, it just may not be what, what we want to focus on. In, in terms of like... Uh like this, uh, this sort of structure of the company, there's certain things that you, that you think lead to greater success. Like for example, um, single founder or, uh, you know, maybe like, you know, uh, an exceptional technical founder that, you know, I mean, what sort of the setup that you see of, of, of startups that do well that, that in your, yeah. um, opinion? I mean, uh, exceptional founder is is always good, and we we tend to um, look at the history of the companies we've sold. Do you see? Do you see like? A, do you see mostly people have have like a uh, a dual split between like an exceptional like business uh, you know operations guy and then a technical founder, or or do you see sometimes that maybe it's just the one a single founder with that and then finds and pays the CTO and the you know. It's a mix. It's all over the board, right? Often there will be two or three or four founders. You know, seven years later, you know, it's tough being co-founders, right? I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it, and so often one or more have left the company and sometimes they, they left under not, not great conditions, right? Um, so that's a pretty, pretty common thing that we run across. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that buyers also like is if the company's been capital efficient, um, and part of their, their thinking is if you're if you're bootstrapped, if you've raised, you know, two, three, four million, even very capital efficient to get to, you know, three, four, five million in revenue. They like that because then they can put more money on your balance sheet, uh, bring in, you know, experts and they can move the needle. If you've raised 50 million dollars and you're at five million in revenue, buyers are going to say you've thrown everything at this and this is all you got probably can't, it's probably not going to get any better. Right. And they know there's a big cap table out there. 
Yeah, they do like they like it when founders have a controlling interest. It's not critical, but they do like that. Often they'll want you to roll over some equity. So if the founders own have a controlling interest, uh, that's often beneficial. It's not critical. Um, but you know, if the founder not being a jerk is a, is a big deal, right? Because part of part of what they'll do is like, do we want to work with these people? You know, the the, and the the founder may or may not have to stick around, uh, but they're looking at the culture of the company. And if you know, if the founder's a jerk and they don't like him or don't trust him, you know, they 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 don't want to work with them. So I mean, so integrity yeah. in all that they do. If they if on initial conversation they spout off, here's who we are, here's what we do, well. Before they buy the company, they're going to scour every cell of every spreadsheet of what you share with them. So if they find a disconnect between what people spout and what the facts are, they'll lose credibility. So you want to be consistent. You don't want to exaggerate, uh, particularly anything historical. You, you just you want to be um, you want to be accurate. You mentioned the, the um, co-founders having problems and things like that. Uh, a question that that we that I often hear is like, how do I find technical co-founder? How do I find a you know a co-founder? Do you have advice on on like bringing in co-founders? How how you came on as a third yourself? I mean, do you have some advice or some stories on on the on like some do's and don'ts on finding your technical co-founder, your co-founder? Let's say you're you're, you're the visionary, you started something, and you want to find a co-founder. Um, you have some. Some advice on that? That's a really good question. I'm not sure I'm the best qualified person to answer that, to be honest. I mean, I, um, I've seen where it goes wrong, but I think it's hard to duplicate what long hours over years can be like for people. I think if you can walk before you run, I think that's that would be ideal. If you could somehow... Like hire them as a contractor or something, meaning... Yeah, or even, even just some coaching on the side. I mean, it's, spend as much time... You want to get to the point where you figure out how you resolve conflict because that's where things I think unwind is if you don't resolve conflict or, you know, one person is all in working 80 hours a week. And the other person may have a new kid and, you know, and they're like, I, I, I'm not working more than 40 hours a week. Right. I mean, and, and that can build up resentment if they've got equal, um, equal shares. So a lot of different things can come up that can cause conflict. So um, I guess talk as much as possible about what could go wrong and what the expectations are. So it's all clear up front that you're all on the same page, or if you're not on the same page, at least you're transparent about how you, how you view things differently. One of the things that maybe concerns me a little bit about the SaaS space is sort of the shelf life of a product is, you know, like you're building something is kind of like 10 years. Um, you know, that's sort of a, you know, that's sort of a, um, you know, a concern for me, um, and other people as well, you know, like what's your feeling on like shelf life of a SaaS? Like, uh, let's say something, a product is getting a little bit long and they're nine years in. I mean, do you feel like they have less value than, than a company, um, you know, that's obviously newer in the space? Uh, I mean, you're feeling like on how to protect yourself on, in, in, you know, from kind of becoming obsolete, I guess maybe your tech gets old and, yeah. um, you know, that's a good question. Now, tech tech debt's a, a big deal, right? And they'll typically do a, a, a scan of your code, uh, one to find out if there's any open source code you're using that you shouldn't be using. Um, but if if there's a lot of tech debt, if it's eight, you know, if you've just got a you know spaghetti ball of code, um, that will will scare some people away. And part of their rationale is 
if I have to rewrite this code anyway, like if I'm going to buy this company and rewrite it, why don't I just write it myself to begin with? Like why, why, why buy it? So, so it, I think it is important that founders, you don't have to rewrite the whole code base, but, but at least in pieces, you should be refreshing things. So it's, it's relatively current or that could be a blocker upon an exit. So you don't feel like if something is sort of 10, getting to 10 years, you know, like, the competition's going to come in and say, okay, this, you know, like move in or something like that. It, it's, there's no like concerns with, um, you know, like 20, because SAS is relatively, you know, 20 years is an old SAS, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, like in terms of like someone getting into a business, it's not like, you know, you're building a family business necessarily. It's, it's, it's almost like kind of you're building something, to really get out in seven, eight years while you can, because it's probably going to, you know, start declining or, you know, I mean, what, I mean, talk, to, talk me through like, um, you know, that sort of life cycle. Yeah. And it's, again, it's different. You know, you've got these, these massive horizontal products, but like in the, in the vertical niches, you know, you've got winners and losers. Um, you know, I've seen some, some companies or some industries where they're, not that sexy. They're not that interesting, right? So they kind of like toil and struggle and, and they grow in, in relative obscurity. And then, you know, some major event like a pandemic hits and all of a sudden, you know, understanding how your employees are thinking and feeling on a daily basis is a pretty big deal because they're all quarantined at home, right? And all of a sudden you'll see yeah. Microsoft and others pour billions of dollars in the industry. And initially, Founders feel good, like, wow, I'm being appreciated, I'm recognized. I'm like, yeah, but but if you're not one of those six companies that just raised a billion dollars, you now have to compete with those people, right? So it can change everything overnight. And 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 you, you know, your best advice would be get acquired quickly because you just maybe you can compete. I mean, I, I love, you know, the old David and Goliath thing, but but the reality is it's gonna be hard to compete with um, someone that has a hundred times more money than you do. And they're and they're funded to to take over the space. We're getting close to the end of the hour, so I just want to make sure I get you off. But um, can you leave uh, can you leave our our listeners off? They're 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 getting to the point like they're getting ready to sell. What they what kinds of things do they need to sort of do to to prepare for an exit? I mean, would you say it takes about a year? Um, and like, what t- types of things do they need to do to prepare for an exit? If you have a year, it's wise. Um, I mean, feel free to give us a call. We're happy to, you know, just we chat with people all the time um, about where they are, what they're working on. Optimize your metrics, um, including profitability, right? And if you're, if you're slightly negative, it's probably not very hard to get to break even or cash flow positive. That's a bigger deal than people think it is. Um, yeah. Most people don't want to buy a company and then have to keep feeding it. They want it to be self-sufficient post-acquisition. Uh, look at your retention numbers. There are, there are things you can do to be smart about your net retention. Uh, for example, you may have a lot of customers that churn. Initially, when you're just trying to get revenue, you'll sign up everyone. Who cares, right? If, they're, if they sign up and they pay, they leave in two months. I don't care. Like They paid for two months, which is better than not paying. But those aren't really subscribers. So find a way to put those in a like a trial category that doesn't hit your churn numbers. All the big SaaS companies have metrics they're very straightforward about, but they're careful to not throw numbers in there that make their their churn numbers look bad. Um, and then also in the net retention, often there are things you can do. You can put out a 
6% price increase, right? And most customers will will take it. They won't balk. Well, that that can bump your net retention by 6%. That's a pretty big deal. So there, there are a lot of like, I, I liken it to, you know, selling your house. You can just throw a for sale sign in the yard. But if you spend a little bit of time, refresh your yard work. So the first thing that they see, a little bit of paint, you know, the the mold and stuff on the gutters, clean it off, clean it up. You'll you'll get more for it. You 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 kill yourself for seven years to build a business to get to five million in revenue. Um, and a little bit of pre-work might get you a six or a seven X instead of a five or a six. That's a pretty big deal. Um, and it's a lot yeah. easier than it is to grow your business 20% to get that same outcome. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Lowell, for your time. Um, we'll definitely have uh, your, your uh, details in the show notes. Um, if, if somebody does want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? LinkedIn is great. Um, or you can just shoot me an email, um, Lowell, L-O-W-E-L-L, at tractionadvising.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Lowell, for your time. Thanks, Gordy.